Ready to form Voltron! Job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! I'm the Doctor. The Super Bowl is one of the largest sporting events in the world. It is broadcast on TV and radio in multiple countries around the world. The halftime shows feature some of the biggest names in music, and many companies spend millions of dollars on commercials, not to mention just spending the money to get their commercial played during the game. There have been extremely close games where only one point differentiated from the winner and the loser, and there have been blowouts where you wonder how the losing team managed to get there at all. But you may be amazed to know that it wasn't always so popular, and the halftime shows weren't always such a big deal. For example, marching bands were heavily featured in most of the halftime shows until 1993, when Michael Jackson did the halftime show for Super Bowl XXVII. From then, it's been the big music acts, but before that, marching bands. And I thought it would be fun to gear up for this year's Super Bowl by taking a look back at the previous 55 games and maybe gain an appreciation for its history. I will be splitting this up amongst the next five episodes, which will come out daily, hopefully, uh, leading up to the Super Bowl this week. So we'll be looking at about 11 games each episode. So let's get into it. But, but first, in order to go over the history of the Super Bowl, we need to go back a bit further. The NFL, originally called the American Professional Football Association, was founded in 1920. Despite many teams starting up and then disbanding, especially during the Depression years, plus some teams having to combine due to many players being drafted during World War II, it was really becoming a popular sport by the 1950s. In 1959, after being unable to purchase an NFL team and move it to Dallas, Texas, Lamar Hunt and several other investors created the American Football League, or the AFL. By the mid-1960s, the AFL had become so popular that the two leagues actually started entering bidding wars for players. As such, following the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them, the leagues decided in 1966 to merge into one league, which would still be the NFL. The leagues would play separate schedules for the next few years, but would end each season with the champions of the two leagues meeting in a big final game. Hunt would also be credited with giving this game the name Super Bowl. After the leagues agreed to merge in the summer of 1966, one of the details to be worked out were the details, the site, and so on for the championship game to be played between the two leagues. And we never knew what to call the game. My children each had a, a ball called a Super Bowl, and my daughter was always talking about that ball. It was a highly concentrated rubber ball that you could bounce on concrete and it would literally bounce over a house very much like a golf ball would. 
and she was always talking about that Super Bowl, and I think it was one of those spontaneous things. I just said, you know, the last game, the final game, the Super Bowl. But for the first couple of years, it would be officially known as the not quite as catchy AFL-NFL World Championship game. The winner receives a special trophy that is actually quite simplistic in its design, basically a chrome football on a chrome base. And the most valuable player gets other special perks, most recently including trips to Walt Disney World and or Disneyland. Oh, and fun fact, remember how I said that Lamar Hunt not being allowed to move an NFL team to Dallas with the impetus for his creating the AFL? Well, he did put an AFL team in Dallas, the Dallas Texans. However, for reasons that you can probably figure out for yourselves, the NFL ended up putting up their own team in Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys. With the AFL not being as popular as the NFL at the time, the Texans just could not compete. So Hunt moved his team up to Kansas City and renamed them the Chiefs. And Hunt kind of got the last word because his Chiefs managed to make history by competing in the first ever AFL-NFL World Championship game, taking on the NFL's Green Bay Packers coached by Vince Lombardi. This first AFL-NFL World Championship game, which is a lot of fun to say, was unique for a couple of reasons. It's the only one so far that did not sell out. It's also the only one to be shown on two different networks. The NFL had a deal with CBS, and the AFL had a deal with NBC, so both networks showed the game, but from their league's perspective. Reportedly, NBC had to use CBS's video feed, although I have seen footage of cameras from both networks at the game. The game was played on January 15, 1967, at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, and as such, featured a rather star-studded crowd. While the Chiefs were only down by a score of 14-10 at halftime, they were unable to score at all in the second half, and the Packers won by a score of 35-10, with quarterback Bart Starr chosen as the game's MVP. The second AFL-NFL World Championship game was played on January 14, 1968, at the Orange Bowl in Miami, Florida. This time out, the Packers will return to defend their title against the AFL's Oakland Raiders. And as predicted, the Packers won the game 33-14. Bart Starr was again chosen as the MVP, making him the first player to win multiple Super Bowl MVPs, which no one had a chance to do it before him. This would also be Vince Lombardi's last game as coach of the Packers. The Packers had won multiple NFC championships under Lombardi's leadership in the 60s, to the point that Green Bay had gained the nickname Titletown USA. After winning five NFL championships in seven seasons, plus the first two Super Bowls, he decided to retire from coaching. This would only last for a year, however, and in 1969, he signed on to coach the team in Washington. But after just one season, he learned he had cancer, and just before the start of the following season, he passed away. The NFL honored him by immediately voting him into the Hall of Fame and renaming the World Championship Trophy to the Vince Lombardi Trophy. By the time the third AFL-NFL World Championship game was played on January 12, 1969 at the Orange Bowl in Miami, the game was officially known as the Super Bowl. This time out, the NFL was represented by the Baltimore Colts, while the AFL was represented by the New York Jets. This game is mostly known for Jets quarterback Joe Namath, a.k.a. Broadway Joe, guaranteeing that the Jets would win the game. See, up to this point, most people outside of the AFL felt that the teams from the older NFL were vastly superior to any AFL team, which was reflected in the Colts being favored to win by 18 points. As such, Namath's guarantee was considered quite bold, 
and became historic when he managed to lead the Jets to a 16-7 victory over the Colts, with him chosen as the MVP. As of this recording, it was the Jets' only Super Bowl appearance, and so far the only matchup that cannot be repeated for reasons I'm going to explain in just a bit. It is also the earliest Super Bowl with existing broadcast footage. See, back in the day, as a cost-saving measure, it was common to wipe film tapes so that they could be reused. As such, no broadcast footage exists of the first two games. You can, however, watch the third Super Bowl on YouTube in its entirety. Super Bowl IV is the last of the AFL-NFL World Championship games, and it was played on January 11, 1970 at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans, Louisiana, with the Kansas City Chiefs returning to represent the AFL and the Minnesota Vikings representing the NFL. Despite the Jets winning the year before, the NFL was still seen as the superior league, and the Vikings were favored to win by 13. But the Chiefs ended up winning 23-7, and their quarterback Lynn Dawson won the MVP. The game is probably most famous for the antics of Chiefs coach Hank Stram, who was fitted with a microphone for the game. Here's a small sample. Boy, that's a bad call. Mr. Official, let me ask you something. How can six of you miss a play like that, huh? All six of you. The ball jumped out of there as soon as we made contact. I thought you were talking about you being on the field. No. What? 65 toss power trap. Look for 65 toss power trap. What does it look like? Hey, look for a 65 toss power trap. Let's see what it looks like. Gloucester, tell him 65 toss power trap. Get in there for 65 toss power trap. Let's block. Let's Come on, go. Lenny, let's, let's get seven points. Come on, let's go. 65 toss power trap. That might pop wide open, Rats. It's in there. In 1970, the merger was fully completed, with the leagues uniting under the NFL banner, with the teams from the leagues divided into conferences. NFL teams Cleveland Browns, Pittsburgh Steelers, and Baltimore Colts would combine with the existing AFL teams to form the American Football Conference, or AFC. The rest of the NFL teams would form the National Football Conference, or the NFC. Each conference was divided into three divisions, East, Central, and West. While there would be cross-conference play during the regular season, the Super Bowl would still feature the best team from each conference. Earlier, when I mentioned that the Jets and Colts matchup from Super Bowl III could not be repeated, that's because this reorganization put both teams in the AFC. They could get as far as meeting in the AFC Championship game to determine who would get to go to the Super Bowl, but they cannot meet up against each other in the big game. So there will never, unless there's some big change in one of the teams switching conferences, there cannot be a revenge game for the Colts in a Super Bowl. Conversely, the matchup of Super Bowl V could not have happened before the merger, when the AFC's Baltimore Colts battled the NFC's Dallas Cowboys on January 17, 1971, once again at the Orange Bowl in Miami. Nicknamed the Blooper Bowl, both teams set a Super Bowl record with the most turnovers in a Super Bowl, with a total of 11. Dallas also set a record by recording 10 penalties, the most in Super Bowl history up to this point. 
Despite all this, Dallas was up 13-6 going into the fourth quarter, where Baltimore managed to score 10 unanswered points, including a last-second field goal. Nine seconds showing on the clock. The Cowboys and the Colts all tied up at 13-13. There is the snap. The kick is up and is long enough. It is! Despite Baltimore winning, Dallas linebacker Chuck Howley won the MVP, the only time so far that a member of the losing team won the award and the first non-quarterback to win. The win gave the Colts some redemption after their loss in Super Bowl III, but would be their last appearance until 2006, by which time they had relocated to Indianapolis. Super Bowl VI saw the return of the Dallas Cowboys taking on the AFC's Miami Dolphins on January 16, 1972 at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans, Louisiana. Despite the southern location, it was a surprising 39 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius at kickoff, making it the coldest Super Bowl ever so far. This game was very one-sided with Miami unable to score more than three points in the entire game, while Dallas set records for the most rushing yards with 252, the most first downs with 23. Their 24-3 victory would be the most lopsided victory for quite a while, and Dallas quarterback Roger Staubach won the MVP. Now, according to legend, their embarrassing loss in Super Bowl VI fueled Miami into not only returning for Super Bowl VII, but also winning every game during the following season. So on January 14, 1973, at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, they faced off against Washington in, ironically, the warmest game in Super Bowl history, with a kickoff temperature of 84 degrees or 29 degrees Celsius. It was a rather defense-heavy game, actually, although Miami did manage to score two touchdowns in the first half. After a scoreless third quarter, Miami finally managed to get close enough to attempt a field goal with just over two minutes left in the game. They were going to cap off their 17-0 season with a 17-0 victory in the Super Bowl. But fate, as they say, had other plans. Down, the kick is blocked, rolling loose on the field. It is picked up by Garrow. He tries to throw a pass, deflected in the air, grabbed by Bass. 40, 35, 30, he's going to score. 10, 5, touchdown. Yeah! The kick by kicker Garrow Uprimian was blocked. Instead of falling on it, he tried to heroically pick it up and throw it but never got a good handle on the ball. Washington quarterback Mike Bass picked up the ball and returned it for a touchdown. Miami still won the game after stopping a last-minute Washington drive and became the only undefeated team in NFL history. Jake Scott, a safety for Miami, became only the second non-quarterback to win the MVP. Miami returned for their third Super Bowl in a row in Super Bowl VIII, this time taking on the Minnesota Vikings at Rice Stadium in Houston, Texas on January 13, 1974. This time it was Miami with a lopsided victory, winning 24-7. Larry Zonka, probably most known by those of you around my age as the co-host of American Gladiators in the 80s and 90s, was awarded MVP after setting Super Bowl records for the number of carries with 33 and rushing yards 145. Miami quarterback Bob Greasy only attempted five passes, which was a record and his counterpart, Vikings quarterback Fran Tarkington, set a record for completing 18 passes, the most in a Super Bowl up to that point. He was also the first quarterback to rush for a touchdown in Super Bowl history. Oh, and fun fact, this was the last Super Bowl to be played with the goalposts in the front of the end zone. The following season, for safety reasons, 
the goalposts were moved back to the back of the end zone, where they still remain to this day. The Vikings returned the following season for Super Bowl No. 9, played at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans, on January 12, 1975, going up against the Pittsburgh Steelers. This started off as another low-scoring affair, with only two points being scored in the entire first half, when Vikings quarterback Fran Tarkenton was sacked for the first safety in Super Bowl history. But in a game touted as showcasing Minnesota's purple people-eater defense against Pittsburgh's steel curtain defense, the low score probably wasn't much of a surprise. However, the steel curtain proved to be the more dominant defense, as the Steelers managed two touchdowns in the second half, while the Vikings' only score was the result of blocking a Pittsburgh punt. And even then, they missed the extra point. Pittsburgh won 16-6, with fullback Franco Harris taking home MVP honors after setting a new rushing record with 158 yards, which was more than the entire Vikings offense combined. Boy, we're really starting to develop a pattern here, with one team from the previous Super Bowl returning for the next one. Super Bowl X saw the return of the Pittsburgh Steelers, taking on the Dallas Cowboys on January 18, 1976 at the Orange Bowl in Miami. Thanks to the wonders of YouTube, I can confirm that this was mostly a defensive struggle. Dallas had a slim 10-7 lead at halftime, and neither team scored in the third quarter. But Pittsburgh managed to score 14 points in the fourth quarter, capping it off with a 64-yard bomb from quarterback Terry Bradshaw to receiver Lynn Swan. Bradshaw was knocked out of the game with a concussion on that same play, and he never actually saw the catch. But that was okay, because while Dallas managed one more touchdown, their comeback hopes were dashed when Roger Stahlbach threw an interception in the end zone as time expired. The Steelers' 21-17 victory is considered to be one of the most exciting in Super Bowl history. Lynn Swan ended up with the MVP after making four spectacular catches for 161 yards and one touchdown. Also of note is this is one of the first major national events to celebrate the United States Bicentennial, with both teams wearing a Bicentennial patch on their jersey. And of course, once I notice a pattern, it immediately ends. A Super Bowl XI featured the Oakland Raiders versus the Minnesota Vikings, and both teams had previously been to Super Bowls, but never won. This was Oakland's second appearance and Minnesota's fourth, a then Super Bowl record. The game was played on January 9, 1977 at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. This one was also fairly lopsided, with Oakland winning 32-14, making them the first AFL team to appear in and win a Super Bowl since the merger. The game started off with a scoreless first quarter, but then Oakland scored 16 unanswered points in the second quarter and never looked back. Oakland wide receiver Fred Bolitnikoff won MVP honors thanks to three of his four catches setting up Oakland touchdowns. He is the only wide receiver to win MVP without actually gaining at least 100 yards. Sadly, this would be the Vikings' last Super Bowl appearance as of this recording anyway. Which isn't to say they haven't come close to returning, because they have several times. They were the first team to go 0-4 in the Super Bowl, but don't worry, they'll have plenty of company before too long. And that's going to do it for our first episode looking at the Super Bowl. I hope you all have a great evening, and I will see you tomorrow with the next episode covering Super Bowls 12 through 22. Take care. Thank you for listening to Charlie's GeekCast. Feedback for the show can be sent to charliesgeekcast at gmail.com, or you can feel free to leave a comment at the show's posting at charliesgeekcast.com. All images and music heard on the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for entertainment purposes only. No infringement is intended. 
Charlie's Geekcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Please be sure to stop by Two True Freaks to check out more great shows. Thank you again for listening, and good night. <laughs>